For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death, and all who hate a brother or sister are murderers. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses to help? Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Beloved, let us love one another because, God, because love is from God, and everyone who is born, who loves, is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love is revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loves us so, loved us so much, we ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is perfected in us. And that's from the first letter of John, chapters 3 and 4. Legend has it that John, the last apostle, and probably did not, uh, was not martyred, died of old age. It was said that they would, he was infirmed near the end of his life and they would carry him on a gurney. And as he would be leaving church desperately, as an old man, he would be crying out, little children, love one another. Love one another. As though desperately the last words off his lips would be like, if I say nothing else my entire life, just love each other. That old, tired, indispensable word, love. How do we make a more loving world? Susie Becker put together a little book called The All Better Book. And um, it's fun. And she went around and interviewed hundreds and hundreds of grade school kids about how to address some of the world's worst problems. Here's one. There's a hole in the ozone, the layer of gas that protects the earth. How would you repair a hole like that? Katie, age eight, said this. Climb up the biggest ladder in the world, which reaches to the moon and put a giant cork in it. Sarah, age eight, says, get some dirt and seeds and plant flowers over the hole and make it look pretty for the aliens. Joanna, age seven, said, take a sample of the gas and have scientists make more and put it back up there. Allison, age eight, says, make special clothes to protect the earth in case the hole gets bigger. Here's another big question that was, uh, she asked. How can you make people feel better about themselves? Well, Caitlin, age nine, says this. If they don't feel like they're pretty, you could say, well, you're a lot prettier than a person I know who has big bulgy eyes. <laughs> Jacqueline, age eight, said this. Everyone should have an alarm clock that says nice things to them in the morning when they wake up. Oh, 
Tom, age eight, said this, everyone's good at something. They should be complimented every day. And here's another question, one of the big problems in the world. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What would you suggest? Kalini, age eight, says this, people should find lonely people and ask them their name and address and then ask people who aren't lonely their name and address. And when you have an equal amount of each assigned lonely people and not lonely people together in the newspaper. Max, age nine, says this, make food that talks to you when you eat. For instance, it would say, how are you doing and what happened to you today? Lauren, age nine, says this, the government should let all the lonely people pick a partner and go on vacation with that person. Shauna, age nine, said, we could all visit one lonely person each week. Matt, age eight, says this, we could get people a pet or a husband or a wife and take them places. And then Brian, age eight, says this, sing a song, stomp your feet, read a book. Sometimes I think no one loves me, so I do one of these. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a way where no one's lonely and everyone feels loved. And I wonder, and we should wonder, how would God answer that? And he has, and the answer is Christmas. He sent his son. The largest statement of love God could ever make is to become one of us. And just for the rest of this morning, I'm gonna say the most obvious fact about Christmas in its simplicity and in its bluntness that Christmas is about love. God sending his son to be one of us. It doesn't get any deeper and it doesn't get any simpler. God's love was revealed among us in this way, John says. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the life we're supposed to live, everyone, a life of love. I know we all know this. I'm not telling you anything new. But we must be reminded once again at Christmas that this is all we're supposed to be about. These ought to be our last words that roll off our lips as they carry us out. Love one another, little children. Love one another. This is the life we're supposed to live. Now, living this life is a foreign concept to us, even though we know it so well because everything around us in our world says you should be powerful, you should be domineering, you should be a hero, you should be, you should be uh, rich, you should be somebody, you should be famous, you should domineer, you should achieve You should do everything in your power in your whole lifetime to become this awesome, top-notch person who everyone respects and reveres and gives way to. And it made me think of um, Nelson Mandela, who was on the cover of The Economist magazine this past couple of weeks ago. Nelson Mandela, The Economist, had his obituary in here and because he ended uh, racism in South Africa. And on the front of the cover, they quote, summing up his obituary, part of the poem Invictus, just like the movie, poem written over 100 years ago by a very bitter man, by the way. And it says this, the poem Invictus says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am 
the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And the American ideology says, amen, that is so true. I am captain of my ship and master of my fate and all that sort of thing. Invictus. Invictus. So resonates within us. And then, if you read the obituary in The Economist, it goes on to say, now, Nelson Mandela was a bit of a paradox. And you can see the writer beginning to scratch her head saying, how could someone make so much change and yet, and yet not do it by shedding the blood of hundreds of thousands of people? We don't know how that works. How could he do it when nonviolence? You can actually read the article and you can see the writer saying, like, I don't get it. It's because Mandela tore a page right out of the Christmas playbook. Become a small child. Become nothing. Let people throw you in prison for 26 years. Don't raise up a huge army. And power up and go to battle. Gandhi, who set free hundreds of millions of people in India against Great Britain, the British Empire, tore the same page out of the Christmas playbook. Become nothing. I just won't do anything to you. I will simply resist. Strangely enough, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., our own civil rights pastor, tore ahead to tear a page out of Gandhi's playbook, who tore the page out of Jesus' playbook, because Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King didn't have an appropriate Christian model around of his own to know what to do. And he set free millions of people in our own country from Jim Crow laws and so forth. No, the world operates differently. Napoleon Bonaparte, writing his memoirs in exile and the end of his life, kept coming back to a single, single thing. How could Jesus Christ change the world so much without an army and without power by dying on a cross, by being a baby lying in the manger, and me, Napoleon Bonaparte, who's had the command of thousands of soldiers and was emperor over Europe, not affect the same change that Jesus Christ did. I don't get it, he'd say. Never could figure it out that it was all about Christmas. Never could figure it out. Over and over, Jesus teaches us this topsy-turvy strategy for living the life, for changing the world. If you want to become great, then become a servant. If you want to find your life, then you lose it for my sake. If you want to become rich, then you become poor. If you want eternal life, you die. Jesus Christ taught his disciples, I'll tell you the truth. If, if you want to change and become like, you've you got to become like children. If you want to change, you've got to become like children. You'll, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say, like, you'll kind of have one foot in and one foot out or anything like that. He just says, you got to become like a child. And we all think, oh, that's so sweet, Jesus. Thank you for telling us to become children. Because I think we think that Jesus means that we picture children in these morally pure, innocent, you know, just as innocent as the pure, driven white snow outside. Wonderful human beings. Little cherubic, chubby-cheeked children saying, more, please. When we all know that once you have one, it's nothing like that. (laughs) Instead, children are these grubby, grabby, greedy, front-of-the-line humans that want it all. 
And perhaps Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's what you got to do. But to the front of the line and say, I want it. And you only have to know this about children and how, how demanding they are is when after Easter you put the bowl, the big mound of bowl of leftover candy or their candy or some candy. I don't know why there's always candy, but you put it out on the dining room table, you know, to share. And, and we all know how this plays because then sister comes in and says, oh, brother, here are the large, full-size, extra-large Kit Kat bar I give to you because I want to share. Oh, no, no, older sister. Here, have all the Laffy Taffy. I'll wait till next Halloween to get some more. I can do without. No, it's nothing like that. It's more like lions in the middle of the night on the Serengeti with hyenas laughing in the background hideously and small dingoes running around with small babies in their mouths. I mean, it is bad. And in, the, in 30 seconds' time, there's nothing but candy wrappers and Ibex horns laying around the dining room table. That's it. Children want it now, and they want it all. And when we get around to speaking about love, it is not some pure little beatific chubby cheek cherub love. It is a greedy childlike love that says, God, I want everything you have to offer. I want it all and I want it now. Maybe that's what Jesus has in mind. When you got to become children, you got to become needy. Lying in a manger saying, Mom, I am hungry and I am wet and I am tired and I want everything right now. I still don't believe in a way in a manger where it says he makes no sound. I mean, nobody knows, but I think he made sounds. Just my hunch. You got to become like children. You got to become like children. You got to become greedy and grabby and grubby and desperate and selfish in the best of all possible ways where a child wants to have all of everything. Christianity knows that this story of a child laying in a food trough is a really stupid story. It's not like we're all, you know, deceived and saying like, what a dumb story about a, you know, a baby lying in a manger and they become the world changer that Napoleon Bonaparte talks about. We know it. As a matter of fact, the four gospels, two of the writers knew it. You know, John's gospel starts off saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Let's just go to a big cosmic reinvention of the, of the creation story. Mark says, let's just get on with his ministry. Only Matthew, which actually kind of begins off talking about like prostitutes and everything, sounds like a reality TV show or something, you know, starts talking about Jesus' birth narrative. And then Luke gets around and says like, well, I'm just telling you, we're all being oppressed by the Roman Empire and here's where Jesus was born. I just got to tell you the way it really happened. We know it's a bad story because it doesn't make for good power. It doesn't make for good politics. It doesn't make for conquest. There's no armies involved because if we were writing the story of Christmas, we would write it like Zeus or Apollo or something like that. Like, and then he came down from the mountain and he, and the big hero showed up, you know, turn, 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 Jesus, the baby, you know? And whip out some lightsaber and slash all the Romans' heads off. You know, that's what we would do if we wrote the Christmas story. Because we only know that kind of power in order to get respect like Napoleon. But that's not the way it went. It's a bad story about a little baby born out of wedlock to a peasant girl as his sole provider. And so tenuous was the story. 
Was Joseph going to send her away? Would the baby be killed? Near miss after near miss after near miss, just like in the Old Testament. All the near miss legacy. And then, why would we go on with the story with Jesus going on to his ministry when he's somewhere around 30 years old and he comes from backwater Galilee and he's hanging out with a bunch of loser fishermen who don't have a real you know, voice in the world and hanging out with tax collectors who are betraying their own countrymen and taking money from them and hanging out with morally impure, unclean, unworthy prostitutes that are outcast in society. Why tell that part? Because of love. Because of love. Christianity gets pulled so much into the world that even when we find a, a wonderful Christmas carol like, Oh, come all ye faithful. Oh, come all ye faithful. And I don't mean to ruin, Oh, come all ye faithful for you, but I, I might do it just a little bit. Okay, a lot. But Oh, come all ye faithful. I mean, read the words here because it's actually a lot more going on here historically than meets the eye. Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Nothing about straw and lowing cattle and hay and fodder and stuff like this. All big sounding stuff. Song goes on. Sing choirs of angels. Sing an exaltation. Sing all ye citizens of heaven above. Glory to God, glory in the highest. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Because here's what's really going on. You don't find any of the silent night, holy night, away in the manger language in this, all power language. Because legend has it that this song who was, rich, was originally written in its original form was written by monks, okay? Nice, quiet people. But the song quickly gets taken over by power politics. King John IV of Portugal ascends the throne in 1640. And King John, unbeknownst to him, has traitors in his midst that are loyal to England, not Portugal. This song gets co-opted and changed as a loyalty secret code to the Prince Charles in England. They're singing about Jesus, but they're secretly saying this is about the guy who's going to take over Portugal. King Prince Charles in England. And it all becomes political intrigue and code. People lose their heads over this sort of thing. Power politics invades the food trough of Jesus. And that's why in O Come All Ye Faithful, it all has triumph and power and glory and citizenry and all of that. Away in the manger. Silent night. You've never heard those words get co-opted by power politics. Away in the manger. Let's all go invade our enemy. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Advanced then. Jesus is 30 years old. He begins his public ministry and he goes out into the wilderness to the Jordan River where John, who is a prophet, John the Baptist, is baptizing people, asking people to become new Jews cross over the Jordan River again, enter the country again, become like the original people who came in the, into the land. Forget all your sins. And John the Baptist sees Jesus walking from a distance. And what does he say? He says, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Big statement. Really strange though. Lamb? 
200 years ago, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard makes this comment about this. He says, just try to imagine the pattern for living the good life. That pattern for living the good life is called a lamb. Kierkegaard says, that alone is a scandal to the natural mind. Because who wants to desire to be a lamb, Kierkegaard says. I hope my kid someday grows up to be a lamb. Like, who's praying that or wishing that? No, you want your kid to be a superhero. Make a cure for cancer or something like that. Not a lamb. And so here, as we close in on Christmas, just three days away, we draw close to the heart of God on this last Sunday before we remember the birth of Jesus. And we find this pattern of smallness, this life of love that we're all being called to, this greedy, grabby, childlike desire that's supposed to be our life's goal. The thing that we're supposed to be all wrapped up in is a life of love that is so desirous and so gluttonous of God's affection and love that it becomes our whole, our, our whole compunction for life, everything that becomes about us. And the Christmas season comes upon us and it says, let's give gifts to each other. Let's give gifts to each other because when we give gifts, we have to take on a humility because you've offered something to somebody and they could reject it. And the bond of love happens when we offer gifts. And then we say, invite other people into your home. Yes, even your brother-in-law. Invite them into your home. Show hospitality. Weird, Weird Uncle Harold can come. They can all come because as the good bishop said, where there's room for two, there's room for three. Where there's room for three, there's room for four. There's always room at the table for more. And share your story together because this is what makes you into a family and makes you into a human being. All your tragedies and your ups and downs, your catastrophes, that's who you are. And Christmas is the time to tell those stories again. And then we put the cherry on top and we say, it's about love. It's just about love. So stop judging other people. Stop holding up all our defenses. Stop trying to get leverage on other people. Stop trying to win and conquer and be Napoleon Bonaparte of your own little world. And follow Jesus to the manger. In just a few moments, we'll take our great symbol of Christ's humility in communion. And you'll come up and you'll tear off a piece of bread and dip in the chalice and eat it. And remember and reflect on the sacrifice to Christ. But just before we do that, and the servers will come up, I think. Just before we do that, let me give you just one little practical thing that is so interesting in our daily lives. Here's your walk away. Here's this little idea about how to incorporate the pattern of the lamb, the manger, into our life. You, you know when someone's telling you a story, and you guys are just in a normal conversation, and somebody starts telling you about their church because they don't go here or something, and they tell you about how awesome their church is? Now, is particular to me because being a pastor, when people find out I'm a pastor, they tell me about their church, you know, and that's cool, and that's what people should do. And they say, our church is so wonderful, you know, it's doing this thing, it's a really honest, cool deal, and we all have this community, and we're giving away all this money, and helping people, and we serve, you know, the poor, and all this stuff. And like, Or then, you're in a conversation with somebody, and it goes to kids, right? Because if you got kids, and your kids are gone, and they're not living in your basement anymore or something, and, uh, and they start telling you about how smart, and brilliant, and wonderful their kid is, you know? 
or, or then you're in a conversation perhaps and um, they, like you're talking about Christmas shopping and they tell you how good of a bargain they got. They got 30% off, you know, on Disney Infinity video game or something like that, right? And then we do this curious thing. We say, oh yeah? Well, let me tell you about my church. <laughs> now we don't say it with that snarkiness. We just simply say, well, you know, my church, we give away a lot more money than most churches, you know, or something like that. Or my kid, he got this award and he's super smart and he's like gonna be an astronaut or something. Or, or I say 50% on Xbox One, you know, or something like that, which you actually wouldn't do with Xbox One right now. But nonetheless, let's just say you tell a story that is one up better than somebody else's story. We do this, this is kind of normal conversation. And one author called this stealing someone's ego food, their ego food, the food they were gonna to use to feed their ego, to say like, I am somebody, I'm important, I'm greedy and I'm grabby and I'm a little kid and say, look at me. And what we do, being a bigger little kid is say, yeah, but I'm better. And we steal their ego food. And you can see it in their face if you pay attention. Their face will kind of fall and they have a look on their face that says, you weren't really listening to me. You're just kind of waiting to tell your own story, weren't you? And it ruins it. So here's what we ought to do. Just let the person be a kid. Just let them say, my church is the most wonderful church in the world. And then you say like, that sounds like a really God-honoring place. I'm glad you, you're excited about it. My kid's the smartest kid in the world. Like, wow, that sounds like you got a real superstar there. That sounds fun. Wow, you saved 30%? That's great. You saved a bundle. You know, and on and on and on. Just simply say back to them what they said. And then keep your mouth shut. And let them enjoy the moment and glow and gloat and have a wonderful moment of telling you something that's so important to them. Don't steal your ego food. And that's called love. That's called love. When we just affirm another person. You see, everyone, genuine love does not need to become Napoleon Bonaparte. It doesn't need to win. It doesn't need to conquer or domineer. It's a lamb. It's a baby lying in a manger. That impossibly ridiculous story is how God shows us that he loves us. And it's so deep and so simple. And we should imitate that the way John says we should do it. Let's do that. Genuine love does not need to win. It just always does. Love always wins if we just let it. And that's how we go into Christmas. And this is the pattern of our life that we come to. That on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And there's the humility piece right there again, right to the very end, saying, I'm gonna be broken. And the disciples still scratching their heads said, what do you mean? He says, well, I'm giving my body for you. And then he took the cup and likewise, after, after dinner, he took the cup and he gave thanks for it. And he said, drink this, this is my blood, it's gonna be poured out for you. And they're all like, what are you talking about? Peter's like, let's get some swords. 
It's time for a revolution. She says, they're coming. Three days later, everyone figured out what the lamb really did in changing the world. And now you, once again, will remember when you come forward and tear off the piece of bread and dip in the chalice and you taste the food and you think, I should feed on Christ all the time. This is what I should be thinking every day in my daily bread. This is my identity. And I thank you, God, for forgiving my sins and giving me a fresh start. Right now, right here. Slate white, slate white to clean. You're reborn. So, Father, we offer up these gifts to you. We thank you, God, for your gift of Christ and for the Christmas story for the Lamb. May we imitate you and embrace this. And I pray for every soul in the room this morning that they would fall more deeply in love with you and make a passionate commitment over the next year that this year is going to be different. In the name of Christ, amen. Come whenever you're ready. There's no order to it. Just come on up whenever you're ready. And so, Father, you have fed us with spiritual food. May you accept your children. What you see is what you get. And may we become like Jesus with every ounce of our spirit and soul and body and mind. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, everyone, we come upon one of the best times of the year. That's Tuesday night, 4 o'clock and 5.30, Christmas Eve service. It's a family service. Bring everybody you got. You know, it'll be fun. About 40, 45 minutes long. Got some special things planned, so it ought to be a good time. Okay? And especially thanks, I guess, would be the word for coming out this morning. I, I don't know what the weird thing is here in the Midwest, but when it's dangerous and you're... And, and the driving conditions are bad, we all say, let's go. I, I don't know what that is. There's a few of us who think like, great potential for an insurance claim. Let's get out there. This will be good. We could ruin our lives. Let's do that. So it's wonderful for you to come, but as I always have this great little fantasy, I was telling First Service, who was really small, I said, I've always had this fantasy that one of these times, like on a Christmas Eve, it'd be so perfect, not that I'm really wishing for this, so, well, I do that somehow there'd be a tremendous storm and all the power would be out and we'd all get in here and we'd light our candles and sing oh holy night i mean oh, silent night you know and it'd be so cool and intimate and then we'd all go out and get in our sleighs and our horse and go home you know and it'd just be the perfect kind of christmas but since we probably won't have that and we've already got our snow today it'll be what it is and we'll enjoy it immensely and it'll be awesome and it'll be a wonderful time would you join me since the light has come and we are in great anticipation that will quote this psalm from chapter 4, and it's a famous line. Stand up, please, and let us, let's close this way. You say the line in bold, and we'll be dismissed with this. This is our promise of the coming light. There are many who say, Oh, that we might see some good. Let the light of your face shine on us. Oh, Lord, go in peace. <laughs>